0: To, we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis 17, uh, uh, verses 1 through 27, although Adrian only read the first 14 verses. A comment that, uh, that Mark made about there being uh, 8.5 billion bugs in a square mile reminded me of something that Ellen said uh, uh, not too long ago. I said something about camping, and Ellen is not a camper. <laughs> And she said, well, if the outdoors are so great, then why do the bugs try to get inside my house? <laughs> yeah, that's great. Father, we're grateful for all of the words that you speak to us. And we're grateful, Father, that these words are, are words that are laced not only with instruction and information, that helps us to understand the greatness of your character and all of the universe, But they are words that insert, that inject into our hearts hope and an anticipation of the greatness of coming into your presence. Realizing the greatness of your love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And so as we study this passage this morning, Father. We want to be able to understand it through eyes that see and ears that hear. The eyes and the ears that you give us to discern your word. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I was uh, reading an article in a journal by uh, David Dark, who is a professor of theology at Belmont College uh, in Nashville. And he was writing about Will Campbell. Uh, Will uh, is not a household name, although he probably should be. Uh, you've seen pictures of him in Life Magazine, you've seen pictures of him on television. Will Campbell was one of the white ministers who helped and escort black children into the public schools in Little Rock, Arkansas when uh, segregation was needed. Uh, he was also the same man who was not only escorting those, those black kids into them, those schools, standing beside them and standing <laughs> around them action. as a shield, but he was also the one that was going into the prisons and making pastoral calls on members of the p flex clan. Uh, and David Dart, having spent a lot of time with Bill Campbell, said that one of the things that he got from Campbell was that um, there was a challenge for all of us to not reduce a person to the madness of a moment. As if it's the whole of what they are, as if they are nothing but the outburst or the dark decision they've made. And he reminds us to understand that people in this world are worked over thoroughly by processes like God. So here's Will Campbell. He's walking beside those black kids who are scared to death, going into those schools, standing beside those children who were victims of those idolatrous processes at work in the hearts of a lot of white people. But he would also make those pastoral visits to imprisoned members of the Ku Klux Klan in an effort to extricate them From the idolatrous processes working them over in their own hearts, that in the end would try to pit them against other human beings in violent ways. I think that one of the great struggles human beings have is to not reduce themselves and their future to the madness of a moment. One of the great struggles human beings have is to not reduce themselves and their future to the madness of a moment." So here's the question. Have you ever felt that there was no hope for you because of of something that you did or something that you were a part of in a moment of personal madness sometime in the past? That there was something that you did that was so heinous in, in your thinking that was so degrading to another human being, something that you said, something hurtful that you might have uh, have done, something uh, that you can't really forgive yourself of, and there is no hope in your heart of ever being able to return to God. I think this is where we really find Abraham at the beginning of Genesis chapter 17. The last time that we had heard God speak to Abraham. Abraham was a young and spry 86 years of age. By the time we get to the beginning of chapter 17, he is staring straight into the face of the century mark. He's 99 years of age. And the last time he had had a conversation with God, the last time he had heard God speak, it was shortly before he and Sarai had tried to start a family through Sarai's slave, that young Egyptian girl by the name of Hagar. It was... A moment of madness for Sarah and Abraham in which they are reenacting the original sin, the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. When you go to Genesis 3, there comes a point where at some level Eve has come to believe that God is opposing her and opposing Adam. The serpent has whispered into her ear, God knows, and if you eat of this fruit that you're going to become like a God. And God doesn't want that, so that's why He's keeping it from you. But He knows that you're not going to die. And at some point, Eve begins to believe that the serpent is right, that God somehow is opposing her and keeping the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of that, from her. And so Eve took the fruit and ate it, and she gave the fruit to her husband, and he ate it. Now, by the time we get to Genesis 16, in the same way, Sarai believes this about God. She says in verse 2, the Lord has kept me from having children. And in the madness of that moment, she took, read the text, she took her slave girl, Hagar, and gave her to her husband, Abraham. And nine months later, Ishmael is born, but 13 years have passed since that voice from heaven has been heard by Abraham. And so what's he thinking? Is it all over for me and the promise and God? Have I done something that is so perverse that, I'm, that God has stopped talking to me? Thirteen years of silence. And then we read these words at the beginning of chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Now, we usually run over those words quickly, but think for a moment about all of those years of silence. Silence after messing up, and not just messing up a little, messing up a lot Abraham is cruel, and he's calloused in chapter 16. Uh, Sarai is, is demeaning, and she objectifies this young Egyptian girl, makes her a slave and a piece of property, makes her a means to an end. It's a horrible chapter. And after years of silence, messing up to that degree, then all of a sudden, an appearance, a gracious appearance. It's like the dawning an I remember some years ago, I was taking Jordan to soccer practice, he was about 17 years of age. We were out in the Selma area, kids were getting out of the car and getting ready for practice, putting their shoes and their uh, shin guards in and, and getting ready for practice. Uh, one of the, the kids that we had known for a number of years, Jordan had played soccer with him since he was in the fifth grade. Uh, it was a kid that Ellen and I knew very well and loved very much. Uh, and, and had spent a lot of time with he starts telling us about how he had gotten a brand new car he had not had his license very long had received not just a new car but a really nice car and he had totaled it that afternoon well he was pretty upset about it as you can imagine and his father as, as, as fathers can do and I too have done to my own regret reacted really badly became about the car what you done? And I said to him, you know, a car is a car and can be replaced. But you can't be replaced. And the main thing to your dad and to all of us is that you're okay. And that 17-year-old kid just started bawling and hugging. You multiply that a hundred times, I think, and you get an idea perhaps of what Abraham is feeling when God appears to him. There's just something about knowing that although you've done something horrible and terrible, that you've made this huge mistake, said regrettable and hurtful things, that you are not dispossessed by God. And that can be a feeling that just seems too good to be true. But we always have to remember that God's faithfulness can overcome your perverse acts and your degrading behavior. God's faithfulness can overcome our most perverse acts and degrading behavior. And so what do you do with that? That kind of faithfulness, that, that kind of loyalty that God shows to us, even though as human beings we're just really wretched at times when it comes to, to living in, in His presence. Well, I've I've used this illustration earlier. I'm going to use it again. Think of the the book of Hosea and his marriage to Gomer. Think about a wife and a husband who are together. the wife knows that regardless of what she does, she can do the most perverse, the most degrading, the most uh, unfaithful thing that you can imagine in that marriage. But the husband is never going to abandon her, never going to reject her. She can cheat on him and cheat on him and cheat on him and lie to him and betray him and he's never going to leave her. He's faithful and he loves her regardless of what she does. How she misses him. So what's she supposed to do with that? Put it to the test, right? Find every man that will have, uh, have her so that she can ruin her reputation time and time and time again to prove that he's like that or knowing that she's loved that way she can live a life that's worthy of that kind of love. And that's what God says to Abraham. What God does in chapter 17 is, is to show, God shows his faithfulness. One of the things that I hope you do when you read all of these chapters is a lot of times the, the Bible repeats words over and over and over again so that you get the gist In this chapter, you find about 13 times you find the word covenant, 11 of those times you find it as my covenant. He says it over and over again, covenant, 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 my covenant, my covenant, my covenant, so that Abraham understands that God is going to be faithful to him. And that what happened in chapter 16 is not going to detour the plans for the promise. And so the first thing he says to him, beginning in verse 1, is to walk by faith. You want to love me, you want to be in covenant with me, walk by faith. Walk by faith. He says in verse 1, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Now there are going to be some name changes as those of you who have gone to Bible notes already know. There are some name changes that are going to take place in this chapter. God is the first one. He has been known as El Elyon, God Most High, Creator, Possessor of the heavens and the earth. Now he reveals himself to Abraham as El Shaddai problem is, we don't really know what the word Shaddai means exactly. It's a difficult word. It, it, it's, a, it's a Semitic word. It has some kind of a connection to mountain. What it seems to mean is that God is revealing himself to Abraham as the God of unassailable power. The God who is a rock, the size of a mountain. And what he's doing is, from the very beginning of this reestablishing of a relationship at least in Abraham's mind he is revealing himself as the absolute and conclusive indisputable and unequivocal power of the universe that is reestablishing that covenant in Abraham's heart and mind and what God says to him is I want you to walk before me in front of me faithfully and blamelessly now notice that he does not say I want you to walk with me Which is the kind of thing that Enoch did in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch is one of those mysterious characters. He's such a righteous person. He walked with God and then one day Enoch wasn't. That's not what's being said here. God is saying, I want you to walk before me in my favor. Think of a a shepherd with sheep and the way that that a shepherd leads the, the sheep. and and guides them and directs them to those places where the sheep are going to flourish and where the sheep are going to thrive. That's the kind of thing that God is saying, because you have a God like me and because you have a God that is faithful, walk before me in my favor. Let me direct you. Walk by faith. Walk by faith. It's the same thing that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We walk by faith and not by what? Because that's what happens in Genesis 3 and Genesis 16. And it's also about what the name changes are now. Abram to Abraham, from father to the father of many. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy, 100 years old, never been a father to anybody, and all of a sudden he becomes the father of many. Everybody's laughing, saying, yeah, that's a great name. Sarai to Sarai. Being renamed is an act of submission in the ancient world. It means that you're accepting the fact that somebody else controls your life and controls you. It's an act of faith. But he also says, be a sign of God's faithfulness. And here we bring up one of the favorite things that through the last several thousand years, preachers have loved to preach about. Circumcision. In chapter 17, beginning in verse 10, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, circumcision was not invented in Genesis chapter 17. It was known among the Western Semitic people. Uh, if you went down into Egypt, the priestly caste were circumcised as well. But here's Abraham. He is from Mesopotamia. He has just arrived in the land, you know, sort of lately in terms of the people groups there. And he is now being introduced to it. And you can just see what he's thinking. You know, he's thinking to himself, you know, Noah gets the rainbow. That's the sign of the covenant. I need circumcision. <laughs> but circumcision is absolutely significant to be circumcised meant that it, it, was, it was penetration to the most intimate and personal areas of a person's life and this being a part of this covenant that God is, has established with Abraham he's saying that there's no part of you There's no part of you. The part that makes money. The part that makes children. The part that enjoys your wife. There's no part of you that I don't control. The thing that is most powerful about a human being it's a thing that I control, which makes a very different kind of a relationship with God than is entertained most of the time in the world today. This cafeteria approach to morality, where we take what we like and we leave still there in the line what we don't like. Most people in the world want a morality that stays out of certain areas of their life. The people we marry, the ways that we make money, what we do with that money, how we, how, what we do with debt... Language, what we we put before our eyes, the things that we laugh at. Circumcision was a visible sign of devotion to God. And the biggest problem that the people of God were going to face, not only in Genesis, but in Exodus, all the way to Malachi, and all the way to, to Revelation, would be idolatry. And what was the way that idolatry was introduced to the people of Israel? Through immorality. And it was a reminder that God was their God, and only their God, and the sole God of their soul. Circumcision was a reminder of the commitment to God. But as with all religious practices, there's a danger that it will lose its significance. That having lost its significance, that it becomes a form of self-deception then all of a sudden Israel will not be so committed to God that it will be committed to what it wants to do, even though it believes it's right, to God, right with God because they're circumcised. Israel would trust more in the act than in God. And so in the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, as, as Moses is getting the people ready to go back into the land and to face all of those idols, he says, circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer. In Jeremiah chapter 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts. It's Ezekiel chapter 44, in addition to all of your other detestable practices, you brought foreigners uncircumcised in heart and flesh into my sanctuary. Notice when he said, in heart, then the flesh. In Romans chapter 2, New Testament, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the what? Heart. Circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. You ever wonder if we do that with baptism? (coughs) We ever do that with baptism where our kids get to a certain age and... Maybe they haven't been to church very much. Maybe they've not been to Sunday school. Maybe they've never been taught to pray. But they are the right age. We've got to get them baptized. Friends, baptism without faith, baptism without that commitment, where you're lining your life up with the will of God, is just getting wet. Baptism is not an alternative to faith. And that's why in Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes to the church in him, that is Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision He forgave us all our sins. And then the third thing he says, and we're done, he says, you know, there's something about living in awe of God's grace. You know, God is going to give Abraham and Sarah a a, a child. He's going to give them a kid through Sarah. And to make that point so that, you know, the the temptation of Hagar doesn't spring up again, he says over and over again, it's going to be through Sarah. You know, Sarah, you're a wife. And Abraham falls on his face and, and laughs. Now, what is that? What is that laugh? Probably inappropriate. Most of the commentators say that, oh, it's you know, it's a struggle with you know, struggle with God. No, God has just revealed Himself to Abraham as now El Shaddai, unassailable power, the Rock, the power, the might. To a 100-year-old lady, he says, you're going to have a kid." And Abraham falls down on his face before him. He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't walk away. He says, God, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. He falls on his face and laughs. Abraham and Sarah commit the Genesis 3 type sin. Baby is born, 13 years of silence. God comes and says again, it's going to be through Sarah. You know, Sarah, your wife. And Abraham laughs. It's amazing. It's amazing. Have you ever laughed because something was too good to be true? Have you ever left, laughed out of amazement? And Abraham, are you sure it's not Ishmael? Are, are you sure that, I mean, I've loved him like his son for 13 years. Just had bar mitzvah. God says, no, it's going to be through Sarah, and you're going to name him laugh. Because that little boy, every time you see him, it's going to face And every time you say his name, you're going to be reminded that what I told you about today is going to happen later. When you think about this, it, it just seems to be I think with Abraham and all of us, we sometimes find it hard to accept That what we, like Abraham, might produce in the flesh is not acceptable to God. And Abraham responds to God's grace. Look at verse 23. On that very day, on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household. A with his money. Every male in the household then circumcised him as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. There is something about that silence being broken that uh, that just really becomes a blessing. You think about you know, a fight that you have with your wife, or a fight that you have with your husband, and there's silence in the house, and finally somebody breaks the silence, and everything kind of put back together again, and everything's cool. Or maybe there's been some estrangement in the family, or you know, people at the workplace, and all of a sudden things get kind of put back together, and it's sort of this relief. Abraham, 13 years the world a little over 400 years of silence between Malachi the opening of the gospel of Mark it says a voice crying in the wilderness silence broken silence broken and the voice in the wilderness out of Isaiah chapter 42 is crying out and saying you know there's a king that's coming there's a son of God He's coming. There's a son who's coming, and that voice is saying, "He's a son, but he's a king. He's a king, but he's a son." And you got to lower those mounds and raise up those valleys and straighten those paths because that's how kings come into the world. And this son and this king, this king and this son, the silence is broken. He says, "You know why I've come? I, I've come so that you might have life." that you might not just have life, but you might have abundant life. And he tells a woman at a well near your a Samaritan woman, a woman in the Middle East, in the ancient world, talking to a man who's a Jew, he tells that woman that that life is going to feel like your life is just saturated with God's Spirit. It just feels like life is just pouring out of you. It's like opening up a fire hydrant out of your belly and letting the life just shoot right out of you. But for that to happen, he had to die so that we might have life. There, He dies the death that we should have died and he lives the life that we should have lived in order for us to get what he should have and did get what he was exalted to Christ. We're going to have a couple of shepherds down here during the singing of this song. And if there are ways that we can make that real for you, break that silence between you and God and God and you so that you can hear him and you hear his call, and you hear his love, and you hear his His invitation to be his son, not just by creation, but his son by adoption, his son by salvation, his son by adoption. But well, during the singing of this next song, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds, our spiritual leaders down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we praise God for the greatness of his faithfulness. that us stand and sing. I care not today what the sorrow may bring, it shadow or sunshine or rain, the Lord